0: My name's Chris, and I have the honor of serving here as a pastor at chapel, and we're glad you're here. Happy holidays to you. Happy Thanksgiving. This is a season in which we pause, and I think we take stock of our lives, and we begin to look across the breadth of our lives, and we begin to be thankful. It's a good reminder during this season to be thankful. And the reason is, is that Thanksgiving is actually the cure to a lot of ills in our relationships with each other. And when we think about relationship, we think about struggle, don't we? We think about love. We think about connectedness. We think about joy, peace, discouragement, argument, frustration, disagreement. How many of you this week are going to be getting together with family? Yeah, most of you. Very good. And that's a good experience. Most people there are good. Yeah. How many of you have, uh, no, let me just ask this question. How many of you don't have a difficult person that's going to be a challenge this week? Okay. Now, no, no. Hold it up. Hold it up. No. Keep it up. Okay. You have no challenge this week in your life. You probably are somebody's challenge then. Okay. I say that lovingly and kindly because every family has them and if you don't have one, Probably you. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 4. And Paul writes to the church. And as he does, there's an issue that's going on in the church that he's very concerned about. So here's how he's going to handle this. We are going to look at this as a concern. We're going to make some observations about the concern. Then he's going to give a prescription to the concern. He's going to say, here's how you deal with the concern in a way that sort of is transformative to all that are involved. And then he says, here's how that looks when it's carried out. And at the very end, we're going to bring sort of a practical point that will help you sort of apply this this week. How's that sound? That's kind of where we're headed. All right, so in the church, Paul writes to a group of people. It's a church that began in the city of Philippi. And there's an issue going on within this church between two people. It's always two people, isn't it? And as a matter of fact, not only are they two people, but they're two women that aren't getting along. No comment. And so in this, he writes to this church, and these two women are not getting along. We don't know the nature of the argument or disagreement. We don't know what was said or wasn't said. We don't know what was done or wasn't done. We don't know what the issue is, and we never will. But they have a disagreement. There's something going on between these two ladies. There's something that's kind of causing a dissension within the church. It's, it's something that grieves the heart of Paul as he writes to this congregation. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, an argument between Saul and Barnabas. And today we look at an argument between these two women. And again, we don't know the details behind it, but what we can, what we can see is that, that Paul brings a prescription and then he sort of fleshes out what that prescription looks like. And so these two ladies probably are not getting together for Thanksgiving, but they have a disagreement. And Paul writes, I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And he writes this because these two ladies are in total disagreement with one another. Again, we don't know the nature of it, but what we know is that his plea is that they would come to some form of unity. That in the middle of all that's going on within the life of this church, there is something that is, that is imperative to these two women coming together and finding agreement. I don't know what the issue is and neither do you, but, but, the, but the point is, is that he really demands that they come to some place of understanding and unity. If not agreement, at least agreement on some things that are important, and we'll talk about that as we go, because quite often when it comes to our disagreements and our arguments, we never necessarily get to the heart of the matter or get it resolved, but we can put in place some principles, some things that will actually help us to resolve those things, and so we'll talk about that as we go, but I just want to make this point before we get, off, get started here, that arguments actually increase anxiety, and I want to pause here for a moment, and we're talking about the first century in this city of Philippi and this church but we're gonna bring into it some modern psychology as we look at this. When we find ourselves in arguments or disagreements, anxiety really increases in that relationship. It increases for the individuals that are participating, and it increases for the people that are involved in some way as bystanders or as other people. And so what can often happen is anxiety increases in these people as they can begin to, what's called, be called triangulate, right? They grab somebody else and they say, hey listen, so-and-so said, and, and this is happening, and they try to get them on their side. You ever, you ever see this happen within, maybe you participated in it, right? You ever feel like that in a family? And so as arguments increase, so does anxiety. It just goes up. Now, this is based upon Bowen theory of family relationships. And Murray Bowen, Dr. Murray Bowen, theorized that the primary driving thing between all of us in our relationships is anxiety. It's, it's at the root of how we relate to one another. And so when our anxiety is high we actually aren't thinking really well, we're not behaving really well in a healthy manner. And, and so what happens is that our thinking and our behavior goes off into unhealthy patterns when anxiety increases at a high level. And so this is his theory of, of kind of understanding family systems and family dynamics. And we're going to jump into a kind of another field here in a moment with a different individual. But before we do, I just want you to to realize that arguments actually increase anxiety. So disagreement increases anxiety not only in us as individuals and in our relationships, but in the system as a whole, whatever that system is. If it's a work environment, if it's a family environment, and if it's a church environment, it'll increase anxiety within the whole system when there's disagreement and there's frustration and there's sort of tension going on within a relationship, all right? So this is why Paul thinks it's so important for Eudea and Syntyche to come to some understanding because it's not just affecting them, it's affecting the whole body. The whole system is being affected by anxiety. It's going up in the room. This church is having a hard time moving forward. And for Paul, it's very much connected then to the gospel, to the furthering of the gospel within the community that if the anxiety is high in the two individuals, Eudea and Syntyche, it's then higher within the environment of the Philippian church, and therefore they are distracted from the mission that God has called them to do and to be. All of a sudden they're looking inward and they're focused in upon the anxiety and disagreement that they're having rather than outwardly on the world and in the mission that Christ has called them to. All right? So I want to follow it up with this statement, and that is this. When you're entitled to something that you're not getting that's where you begin to argue. Argument is being entitled to something that you're not getting. It's a sense of entitlement, that you didn't receive something from somebody that you think you deserve to get. Think about that for a moment. Every disagreement and every argument centers around something that you feel entitled to. You're entitled entitled to be heard, to be loved, to be accepted, all of it is about entitlement when it comes to the arguments and the friction in our relationships. So if you think about those disagreements, you think about those things that rub you the wrong way with those family members, more than likely there's some sort of sense of entitlement on your part and on theirs as well. Let's jump back into the the chapter here. We're looking at Philippians 4 and verse 3. Paul then says, not only do I implore you to, to, to help these two women become of one mind, he says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, as he writes to an individual there, help these women. See, these women need help. Whenever there's sort of argument or disagreement, it seems that Udea and Syntyche couldn't come to some resolution on their own. They needed the community to come around them. And again, if the anxiety is high in these two individuals, and then the anxiety is raised within the system itself, the church, who's going to step in to help lower this thing? Who's going to step in to make this right with them? And so he, he says to the, to the person he's writing to, help, help them. It takes the community to come around in that disagreement. It's not just a them problem anymore, it's an us problem. Does that make sense? It's kind of where Paul's coming from. So help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So Paul says, look, they have been unified in the furthering of the gospel, and now because of what's going on, the furthering of the gospel is being prohibited. And I know these two women are for it because they worked with me for it. But, but this, this whole thing is stifling the furthering of our mission together. And so he implores this individual to please help. The community has to come around to help sort of resolve this tension. Moving on, he then says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is an interesting sort of bit here because I think when we read this text, we're so used to reading chapter and verse and memorizing chapter and verse, we miss that actually this is the whole context in which we're talking about rejoicing in the Lord. That quite often we sort of Note that these two women are having a problem and that Paul's imploring this individual to get involved. And then we move on to the verses we like to memorize and put on banners and stick in our mirror, right? And we like to put this thing up. We don't put up that Eudea and Syntyche are having an argument, right? We don't put that up on our mirror. We don't quote that. We don't memorize it. And what happens is then we lose context. And it's actually this context in which he's writing these words, Rejoice in the Lord always. What he's doing here, what Paul is attempting to do is he's attempting to lower the anxiety of the whole system by saying there is a unifying factor here even in our disagreement. The unifying factor is that we rejoice in God. Do you remember that? Eudea, Syntyche, Companion, Church... Do you remember that we rejoice in the Lord always? Do you remember that even in our disagreements, even in our in our frustrations with one another? Don't don't you know? Don't you remember? We rejoice. We praise the same God. And so he makes this note and he says, "Look, let's just lower this whole thing." And then he says it again. I'll say it again. I'll say it again. He wants to repeat it to this church. Rejoice. Now, when you're in disagreement with somebody, when you're when you're having that that awkward moment where you pass by them in church, right? And you sort of look one way and they look the other, because that's what's going on with UD and Syntyche. When you have that moment, you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and you're kind of avoiding eye contact with that one person. It's just awkward. And you have that disagreement, that frustration, and that individual is difficult to get along with. Do you really feel like rejoicing in that moment? (laughs) You don't really feel like rejoicing. I tell you, the leaders in this church didn't feel like rejoicing. They're like, they're wringing their hands. What do we do with these two ladies? They, they were in agreement, now they're not. What do we do about it? Paul says, you begin with rejoicing. Begin with, a, begin with a place of praise in your heart toward what God is doing. And then he continues to write this. He says this, let your gentleness, let your gentleness be evident to all. And then he, pro, he, he sort of reminds us of this promise that not only do we rejoice in all of it, and again, he says rejoice, but then he says, listen, in it, be gentle to one another that disagreements and arguments are actually just a part of life. I mean, here here he is in the church 2,000 years ago, writing about two women that aren't getting along. Has much changed? There will always be strife. There will always be disagreement. There's always going to be friction in relationship. And yet he says, be gentle. Be gentle with one another. And may it be evident to all, because for Paul, this is very much connected to the mission. That if there isn't gentleness in relationship with one another... Who's going to come to follow Jesus anyway? Like who, who wants to be a part of a system that looks just like their family back home? They want to be part of a regenerated system. They want to be part of a, a family that looks different and acts different. And it, it's, it will still have the same issues. Like I hear a lot of people, it's very interesting, there's a church that I pastored in Long Beach, and a woman um, came up to me and there had been some conflict in the church. And she comes up and she says, I, I'm leaving the church. And I said, well, you can't leave the church. And she said, well, watch me, right? And I said, no, 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 you can't leave the church. You can leave this church, but you can't leave the church. And she said, no, 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 I meant this church. Oh, okay, you're going to leave this church, all right. And and what's going on? What's the issue? Well, I'm going to go find a church that doesn't have conflict. And I said, then you are leaving the church. You're not leaving this church, (laughs) Find a church without conflict. It's not that the, you know, the problem is, and she'd been a follower of Jesus for like 40 years. That was what was so disappointing to me. Because the point is, is is not that you're going to find a church without conflict. The point is you've got to find a church that actually handles conflict well. Because there's always conflict. That's what Paul's writing. And so be gentle. And then he makes us this promise. And this is what's so great for you and for me as we get together with family today or this week. And it's going to be difficult. And there's going to be tension. The Lord's near you. The Lord's near. He's near you in that. And then Paul continues to write in the next verse. He says, do not be anxious. And there's the word today. Do not be anxious about anything. And, and do you notice he says anything? He doesn't say all these things don't be anxious about, but this one's okay. He, do, he doesn't say, don't be anxious about anything except your situation, your situation, your situation. And if I only knew that family member, oh my goodness, yes, I would be anxious too. He doesn't say that. He says, do not be anxious about anything. And here, here's the insidious nature of anxiety that is different than fear. Do you, have you ever realized that anxiety and fear are different? Fear is an emotional reaction to a real and present danger right? It's a real and present danger. I'm driving over the over the hills uh, just past Copperopolis on Highway 4. I'm almost to Farmington. You know how it goes like this a bunch, right? We're driving up the hill. It's a double yellow line, no passing zone, right? Except for apparently Bay Area people. <laughs> like it's no passing zone except if you're from the Bay. Then apparently you're allowed. And I'm coming up one of these hills and guess who is in my lane? Yeah, It was unreal. We had to slam the brakes, move the car over, and coming down the hill on a double yellow, I mean, totally blind. What are you thinking kind of move? Now, was I anxious or was I fearful? Fearful. I was fearful. (laughs) There was a real and present danger right in front of me. I was fearful. What do you think happens the next time I drive up that hill? Am I fearful? No, now I'm anxious. See, anxiety is connected to a fear that actually isn't there. That's an important difference because fear is a reaction to something that is actually happening. Anxiety is fear about something that hasn't happened, nor might it not happen, nor will it happen necessarily. That's the insidious nature of anxiety. And so what happens is we become anxious about all kinds of things. There, there isn't a real and present danger We're just fearful, period. When I hit that hill, I'm now fearful. That's anxiety. And every time I hit it, I'm anxious. You see? So when we get in a relationship with each other, and we have these arguments, and we have these things in our families when we get together for the holidays, we can be anxious, can't we, going into that situation? We don't know if Uncle Bob's going to blow his top. We don't know if Negative Nelly is going to show up and criticize everything, including the food. We don't know if grandpa is going to come alongside of us and say something that's very hurtful or painful. And so we're anxious. They haven't done it yet, but we know what they're capable of. But Paul says, he doesn't doesn't even get at don't be fearful. He says, don't be anxious. Don't be fearful of something that isn't even necessarily a reality. And what is driving the argument between these women, what is raising the level of temperature within the room of this church is the anxiety about something. We don't know what it is, but it's about something. And so here's a question for you. What are you anxious about right now? What is driving your anxiety right now? There's no proof it'll happen. There's, there's no real and present danger. You just really fear it might happen. That's anxiety. What are you fearful of might happen? That's anxiety. And Paul says, "Don't be anxious for anything. Now let me jump into sort of um, bringing this to another field. So we talked about Dr. Murray Bowen, who theorized that it's anxiety that drives all systems. it drives all uh, individual relationships. It's what pushes us and pulls us in our relationships toward or away from one another. It's anxiety. Then this uh, rabbi came along. And I want to throw a quote up from him, if we can do that. Dr. Edwin Friedman is a Jewish rab- was a Jewish rabbi, passed away in the late 90s. And what he did is he was also, he was also um, not just a rabbi, but he was a family therapist. And what he did is he took Bowen theory, which was that family systems theory of anxiety, and he took it and he applied it to the church. And he said, this is interesting, family systems theory seems to apply to Church systems also. And what he said is that the family of God is much like the nuclear family or an extended family in that it, it deals with anxiety. There's anxiety within the system. And so here's what he writes. He says, what makes the chronically anxious family's anxiety chronic is not its pain. So let me stop there and just sort of explain this for a moment. It's not the hurt that's between two individuals that makes for chronic anxiety within the family. It's the way it deals with its pain. See, it goes back to my friend who left the church, and she said, I'm going to go find a church that doesn't have conflict. It's really not about finding a church that doesn't have conflict. It's about finding a church that actually deals with conflict well. Right? It's not about finding a new family this week as you sit down for Thanksgiving. It's about how you handle that anxiety and that conflict. That actually, in the way it gets worked out, if it is healthy, will actually make for a longer, sustaining, more healthy relationship with your family members, right? So what Dr. Edwin Friedman did is he took this uh, Bowen theory and he said, I'm going to lay it over the church and I can see how the church functions as well. When the anxiety is high, people just, I tell you, they're just in conflict, right? And so he's saying this to the Philippian church. He's saying, look, that's why it is so essential that Eudia and Syntyche get this worked out because we have to lower that anxiety within the church or the family. Okay, so hopefully you're getting some tips here. All right, here's another uh, quote by Peter Steinke, and he writes this anxiety affects human functioning by tightening thinking or restraining behavior. And what that means is we become more narrow in our thinking, right? That's why we call uh, Negative Nelly, Negative Nelly. She actually has a name, right? Because she's negative. Right, so so there's this 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 um, compression of thinking, a narrowing of thinking when it comes to people. We start to see people through what they're not, or through the lens of um, our own pain and anxiety. We start to see them as negative and only negative. Is negative Nelly always negative? Well, I hope not. It just seems that way because it has narrowed my thinking or restraining behavior, meaning that I don't move toward that person. Right. I avoid them. I avoid eye contact. I don't don't come into relationship with them. And so he writes that anxiety affects our functioning in those ways. He then goes on to write this, and this is so vital. He says, when anxiety ushers in its relatives anger, anguish, and grief, the temptation to scapegoat is strong. Scapegoating is an attempt to pinpoint a culprit or to find fault with someone. And so what Peter Steinke is writing off of Edwin uh, Friedman's writings, who's writing off of Bowen, is this, that when anxiety is high within your family, when it's high within yourself, when there's argument and disagreement together, when you're around Thanksgiving and the holidays with people, the temptation is actually to put blame onto other people. It's to put blame onto other people. And I think, I think the heart of God is actually that we begin to do self-examination. We begin to look at our own hearts. We begin to look at our own lives. Because when we rejoice, and he says it again, rejoice, we remind ourselves of who is in charge and who is not. We remind ourselves that God is God. And I am just me. And when I begin to look into my own heart and my own life, and I realize, my goodness, I am not perfect either. I am difficult to get along with at times. I can be very negative and critical. I can be judgmental. We suddenly discover, as we've been studying the last eight weeks, grace in my life. And when I experience grace in my life, I can then extend it to other people around that dinner table. And then I'm not scapegoating. I'm actually owning. And I think that's the life that Jesus would invite us into. Instead of scapegoating, I think Jesus would have us own. I think there's all kinds of examples in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching and you have people pointing fingers at each other. Well, look at that person and look at that person and look at that person. Perfect example is Martha and Mary and Jesus comes over for dinner and Martha walks out, right? She's busy putting the turkey in the oven by getting all of the mashed potatoes ready for this Thanksgiving feast they're gonna have, right? And Martha's working and working and and she walks out and what is Mary doing? She's being lazy. I think she had a name, Lazy Mary, you know? And so anxiety has increased. And what does Martha do? She points and she says, Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help me. And what is she doing? In Bowen theory, she's triangulating, right? If you're going to triangulate, get Jesus on your side. That's a really good idea, you know? So that when you sit down with that relative and you're having difficulty, you can say, Jesus and I talked about it and we agree. <laughs> See, because if you can do that, you win, right? Because who can go up against Jesus? So Martha's a genius. She says, tell my sister to come in and help me. She triangulates. And Jesus is sitting in this room and he's like so not anxious, isn't he? He's so completely not anxious. He doesn't get caught up in Mary's, or Martha's anxiety and says, yeah, you know, this isn't right what Mary's doing. Jesus is so non anxious. He just sits there and he says, first of all, I'm not going to be triangulated. He's just going to say, Martha, Martha. And what does he say? You are worried. You're anxious about so many things. And then he says, how many things are needed? One, and Paul says, rejoice. And he says it again, rejoice. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. And so the person who walks in the room and thinks they're going to get Jesus on their side ends up with Jesus on the other side. You see, the invitation of following Jesus is actually to be examining your life and your heart. And to not be finding fault like like Martha did, but to be finding Jesus in it. Martha missed Jesus because she was scapegoating. She missed the very presence of her Lord and Savior because she was more concerned about proving Mary wrong than she was about loving her God. And Paul says, "Rejoice," and he says again, "Rejoice." Continuing, Paul says, "This do not be anxious about anything," which is what we read. But in every situation, so this is an allness statement, and it's also in in the Greek. This is an ongoing action; it's a present action with ongoing um, results. To to not be anxious, continue to not be anxious about anything, and continue in every situation is really what Paul's saying. By prayer, then, and petition, and now he brings the prescription. And he says, Here's the issue anxiety is high, relationships aren't going well, everything's going south. He says, Don't be anxious about anything. He says, Pray. Pray. He's saying this to the situation going on in Philippi, but in every situation, by prayer and petition. And then he says, Not only is that the prescription, here's the cure. The prescription is prayer and petition. The cure is thanksgiving. That's the cure to this disagreement. With thanksgiving, rep- present your request to God. So why thanksgiving? Why is that so important? Why is it so important we came up here and did these tables? Why is it so important that we take this week, and it actually should be every day, but why is it that, that we need to come to a place of thanksgiving? Because it, it shifts our focus from the fear that is unreal to the sentiment built on actuality. So if anxiety is a fear that has yet to happen, Thanksgiving is grounded in what already has. You see, I can't be thankful for a future I don't know yet. Because I'm not guaranteed a future. I can't be thankful for Thanksgiving ahead of time in 2017. I can't tell you what I'm thankful for at Thanksgiving in 2017. It hasn't come yet. But I can tell you what I'm thankful for in the days behind me, so it's a mind shift from what is to come. Paul says to move from that to actually focusing on what has come already and being thankful for it. And he continues to write this. He says this, or I'm sorry, we need to jump into this point real quick, and then we'll get back. Thanksgiving begins. Nope. Thanks. Thanksgiving begins where entitlement ends, and so if if arguments are centered around entitlement. Thanksgiving starts where you stop being entitled. So the moment you stop being entitled in that argument to whatever it is you think you deserve, you can actually begin to be thankful. That's where it begins. That's what Paul is saying is be thankful. Okay, continuing then, jumping back into this, he says, and then, and then, and then. So rejoice, pray, and be thankful, and then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which means nobody really understands it. You can't sort of go and get a subscription to this. Amazon can't send it in two-day prime. It doesn't just come that way, all right? It's only through the rejoicing and through the praying and through the being grateful that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which means you can't explain it, it just comes. Well, then do what? It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guard you from what? Anxiety. Anxiety. Continuing. Finally, brothers and sisters, he then says, here's how you be thankful. Here's how it looks. Right? So he's given us the problem. He's given us the prescription. He's then shown us the cure. And then he says, here's how it looks. This is how you'll know it is taking shape in your life. How do I know I'm thankful? By this. This is how it takes shape in your life. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. Now, when I hit that hill on my way to Farmington, is there a car coming over in my lane? Probably not. That's true. That will drive down my anxiety. Whatever is true. Could it happen? Sure, it could happen. What are the chances of it? Pretty rare. I mean, I've lived up here almost eight years and it only happened once. Whatever's true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. He's naming things that we are to be thankful for. He's saying, here's how Thanksgiving looks. It's wrapped around these qualities. Is it true? Is it noble? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it admirable? Continuing, he then says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, right? Because it started with rejoicing, and then it's going to end with rejoicing. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy... Then do what? Think about those things. So when I'm headed up that hill and I'm wondering if that Bay Area crazy guy is going to be coming over into my lane, what am I thinking? What am I thinking about? Am I thinking what's true, what's noble, what's praiseworthy? Am I thinking about those things or am I thinking about other things? And so as we head off here into Thanksgiving, as we gather with family, What can you be thankful for in the middle of that? Because Thanksgiving really is what drives down anxiety. Those are the things we're to think about. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about that's driving your anxiety? Are you thinking about a future that has yet to see reality? Are you thinking about something coming up this week? A person, a difficulty, a situation that you think love or grace or mercy can't cover or shrink what are you thinking on? Because what you're thinking on will determine how you relate to other people, and that's where Paul's coming from here with Ian and Sydica. Continuing, he then says, "Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Actually do it. And when you do, the God of peace will be with you. And he's writing to a context in which there isn't much peace, at least between these two ladies, what's going on in the church? He's saying there's nothing more precious than them being of the same mind because they've worked with me in extending the gospel. And he's thankful for both of them. Notice he doesn't take sides. Notice he doesn't say one is right and the other is wrong. Notice he doesn't write to a companion, the companion that he's writing to, and say, look, tell Syntyche this and tell Eudea this. He doesn't even insert himself in the middle. Paul is just like Jesus. He's sort of this non-anxious presence that says, look, rejoice. Be thankful and praise whatever is true and noble and right and focus on that. And if you can get these two women to focus around that, it's beautiful. And so I hope today, I hope today that in some way you can walk away this week, going into the holiday season, whether it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, all of it, and you can come at it from a place of non-anxiety, but rather peace and thanksgiving. For the people around you, as we are reconciled to God, may we be reconciled to one another. And let me leave you kind of with this final, like, thought that will help you: anxiety is decreased as gratitude is increased. If you have high anxiety, you have low gratitude. I'll say that one more time: if you have high anxiety, you have low gratitude. What Paul says is that when we increase our gratitude, when we increase our thanksgiving, our anxiety goes down. And that's a good thing for Dr. Murray Bowen. It's a good thing for Dr. Edwin Friedman. That's a good thing for the Philippian Church. It's a good thing for Chapel in the Pines. It's a good thing for you and for your family. Increase your thanksgiving and watch your anxiety